This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. America betrays its broken judgment with its treatment of two presidents. Ukraine finally launches its counteroffensive against Russia. Germany leads the largest air war drills of the world's largest alliance. And the U.S. negotiates an unwritten nuclear agreement with Iran, out of view. All of this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, June 16th, 2023. I'm with our Philadelphia Trumpet writers here in the studio and over our connection with our office in England, as well as a connection with Israel. And we're here to bring you a digest of the most important news of the week. In studio are Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. And in our studio in Britain are Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Andrew Miller, let's start with you and your region, Anglo-America. Yeah, in the Anglo-American region uh, this week, there's actually been over 10 million acres of Canadian land burned in wildfires so far. Intelligence agencies in the United States are buying up vast amounts of sensitive data on American citizens. And inflation-adjusted wages in the United States are down for the 26th straight month. That's a stretch twice as long as the global financial crisis and a new record. We could get into any number of those pretty pretty deeply, but you're going to bring us something else as the main story from Anglo-America this week. Yeah, the main story this week is actually the same as the main story last week, uh, which is the Biden bribery scandal and the government's bending over backwards attempt to distract you from it. Now, on this program last week, we kind of covered uh, uh, both the Biden bribery scandal and the Trump indictment, which the government's using to uh, to distract you from that bribery scandal in general details. But uh, we've definitely had a lot more information come out uh, this week, particularly about the Trump indictment. You'll remember if you uh, listened to last week's program that on uh, Thursday of last week, June 8th, Uh, The House Oversight Committee received a document from the FBI showing that Joe Biden himself, not Hunter Biden, took a five million dollar bribe from a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch. Uh, But within hours of that just bombshell uh, revelation, Trump was indicted on 37 felony charges related to his handling of classified documents. Uh, last summer. Uh, So the timing of all this is uh, really suspicious. It's like you've had a year where since the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, how is it that you uh, released this indictment right as you had this big allegation of Biden corruption, unless it was a premeditated distraction? Now, since last week on Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump actually went in Uh, to court in Miami, uh, pleaded not guilty, um, and and then a couple days later addressed addressed the charges against him uh, just to explain to the American people why this is a distraction. 
the Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents. As president, the law that applies to this case is not the Espionage Act, but very simply the Presidential Records Act, which is not even mentioned in this ridiculous 44-page indictment. Under the Presidential Records Act, which is civil, not criminal, I had every right to have these documents. All right. So actually, as you just heard there from Donald Trump himself, uh, it is actually really significant that uh, of those 37 charges, 31 of them are violations of the 1917 Espionage Act. And I believe most of the other six are charges of obstruction of justice and Trump trying to defend himself from being falsely charged with the <laughs> violations of the Espionage Act. But uh, but Trump went on to say there that it, it is interesting is that that Espionage Act is not the most <laughs> relevant law in this case. The most relevant law is the one that's not mentioned in the indictment at all, the Presidential Records Act. The Espionage Act was designed to keep private citizens from uh, basically taking sensitive government information, turning it over to foreign nations, which no one is charging Trump with doing. He hasn't turned it over to any foreign nation. And there's a big difference between me having a classified government document in my apartment, which I don't, uh, <laughs> and a former president having classified documents from his administration. So the, the Presidential Records Act is specific not not the espionage is general to like anybody the presidential records act is specific to like okay well what what documents what classified documents was a person who was once president allowed to keep and trump points out he said the fact that they have not charged him with a violation of that act shows they don't act probably don't actually have much on him and are definitely looking at the more general act to make it look like he's guilty of a crime. And as you mentioned, I mean, this is a, a distraction. While people are getting into the details of the indictment and so forth, uh, they are overlooking an alleged payment of millions, $5 million, uh, for vice presidential and presidential policy decisions from a Ukrainian to uh, Joe Biden when he was vice president. Uh, there are apparently recorded telephone calls uh this is there's credible information possessed by the federal bureau of investigation and then has been in their possession for years and uh apparently has been added to year by year additional evidence and then the fbi has been has been striving to hide that evidence even from congress uh, but finally we have members of congress speaking in the in the in the Senate chambers, saying that the man who is in the White House has been bribed. So uh, keep an eye on that. As many uh, as much as the headlines will will uh, give you lots of information about Donald Trump. Look at those headlines on on Joe Biden. Yeah, no, that's all very relevant points. And uh, and one of the big things in here is just the double standard of justice in America. Because um, even if it comes out that Donald Trump is um, guilty of some 
misdemeanor or infraction with the Presidential Records Act. Uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden have <laughs> probably even more sensitive records in less secure locations that no one's investigating. So there's definitely uh, a two standard of justice where you actually have a re revelation that a man like Joe Biden's accepting millions of dollars from corrupt officials in foreign nations uh, and is not charged with anything. Uh, as opposed to another man <laughs> who took a letter from Barack Obama saying that Kim Jong-un is a threat home with him when he left the White House uh, and is now being accused of being a, a double agent under the Espionage Act. Uh, two of the um, <laughs> links we'll put in the show notes this week is one, we'll put um, our editor-in-chief's uh, book, America Under Attack. I think we've put that in the show notes every week since I can remember <laughs> For now, uh, but then also um, uh, an, a more specific article uh, Mr. Flurry wrote titled America's Broken Judgment. Uh, that article is specifically about courts refusing to look at evidence of election fraud, uh, but it goes through um, uh, some pretty sobering prophecies in Micah, particularly the one uh, I've highlighted today in Micah 3 verses 1 through 3 where it talks about the heads of the house of Jacob and the princes of the house of Israel um, who hate the good and who love the evil, who pluck off skin from them and their flesh from their bones and eat the flesh of people. And it's kind of like a metaphor that the just the level of corruption in the justice system is almost akin to cannibalism, um, where you just literally devour innocent people while loving evil and turning a blind eye to corruption. And so this is definitely something, uh, a story along those lines where uh, you're charging Donald Trump with <laughs> 37 felonies that carry a maximum penalty of 100 years in prison uh, because he kept a letter from Barack Obama and, and some other documents as well. I think there were 102 documents he took home with them. Uh, none of them that would seem too serious so far, uh, while at the same time completely ignoring the fact that uh, Biden took a $5 million bribe. And it's not the only $5 million bribe he took. We know of at least two $5 million bribes he took from that same circle of Ukrainian oligarchs. Uh, they've actually just had about $10 million of unexplained funds turned up in his tax return this week. So we're uh, we're finding out that they definitely took... Uh, a lot of money from foreign nations in return for selling government favors. Uh, it's kind of like if that's not a violation of the Espionage Act, then I guess nothing's a violation of the uh, Espionage Act. But no one's uh, no one seems all that keen into looking into that because of that double standard of justice that Micah prophesied about. America's Broken Judgment was that article title. It's surprising sometimes how these titles and their contents become more relevant and more appropriate and more accurate and more uh, revelatory years after the article is written. But that was America's Broken Judgment and America Under Attack. Trump.com has only devoted an entire website to one book a couple of times that I can remember. And one of those two is AmericaUnderAttack.com. That's the newest book that the Trumpet has published. Go to AmericaUnderAttack.com. Jeremiah Jacques, you watch Asia. What is the news from Asia this week? 
Yeah, one notable story is that new evidence shows that those drones that Iran is selling to Russia to help it kill Ukrainian people are being made with Chinese components. So China, you know, they claim a position of neutrality in the war. They claim that they are not assisting Russia. But of course, those claims are uh, ludicrous. And here is yet more evidence showing that some vital components for weaponry are coming from Chinese companies. Another story I'll briefly mention is that China's nuclear arsenal is growing. This is from a new report by CIPRI, or the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and it says, over the last year, China's arsenal of nuclear weapons grew from 350 to 410. So a major increase there showing, really showing China's determination to become a nuclear superpower. Speaking of nuclear weapons, Russia has just transferred some of its tactical nuclear weapons to Belarus. This was confirmed on Wednesday by Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko. And he said that even though these are categorized as tactical weapons, some of them are three times more powerful than the bombs that were dropped on Japan back in 1945. This uh, marks the first time that Russia has had any of its nuclear weapons deployed outside its borders since the Soviet era. So just a, a very alarming development there, especially for the Europeans who are watching this. And then the last smaller story that I'll mention here also involves China, but it's mostly about Russia and Pakistan. Uh, Russia is now selling Pakistan huge quantities of crude oil to power Pakistan's economy. So this is building up Russia-Pakistan ties, and the sales are also being conducted not in the U.S. dollar that has long dominated Pakistan's, you know, payment policy, but they're being conducted in the Chinese renminbi. So with this major deal, Pakistan is drawing nearer to both Russia and China. You mentioned Iranian drones with Chinese components being used by Russia to slam into Ukrainian targets and Russia actually moving nuclear weapons into another nation, Belarus, for possible use against Ukraine or who knows, other European targets. I saw a video of the shelling of a Ukrainian city. I don't know how old it was, but it's from this war. Uh, it was a complex of several apartment blocks, and it was surreal. It was like some sort of footage from a video game, and I just had to keep reminding myself that this is real. Uh, this war is horrific. It is. Yes, this war is, uh, you know, it's now into, I think it's the 17th month, no real end in sight. Um, and the big story, I think, from this week is just that Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive, you know, that is meant to drive these Russian forces out of their sovereign territory, it's now well underway. So the battles are now raging in the south and the east of Ukraine. Ukraine's using all kinds of uh, heavy weaponry supplied by the U.S. and Germany and Poland and the U.K. and other Western nations. These weapons include uh, main battle tanks and infantry fighting vehicles and various kinds of um, missile and artillery systems as well. And Ukraine is using all this to try to punch through the first of several layers of Russian forces. Um, so it's happening in parts of the country that Russia seized last year. And Ukraine is gaining ground, but it's happening very slowly. The Russians are using these loitering munitions that stay airborne as they lock onto targets. The Russians are also using anti-tank guided missiles. So all of that is helping the Russians to really defend their positions and, and posing serious obstacles to Ukraine. Ukraine has so far regained control of about 38 square miles of land so far during the counteroffensive. Uh, that's as of yesterday afternoon. 
But Ukrainian forces have now crossed the Dnieper River in great numbers, and they've gone down the eastern side of the river, and they're currently attacking Russians in the Zaporizhia province. So it's, uh, at this point at least, just a very wide kind of assault, just probing around. You know, the Ukrainians are mostly searching for a spot in the Russian defenses that they can punch through. So the aim of this, if they are able to break through the Russians, would be not to necessarily encircle them, but just to charge south, to make their way south all the way down to the Sea of Azov. And if the Ukrainians can do this, they'll have basically severed that land bridge that Russia built from Russia proper to the northern access point of Crimea. So this would really divide the front into two parts. It would position Ukraine to easily destroy what's left of the Kerch Strait Bridge. And it would make Russia's position in Crimea extremely difficult to defend, if not impossible. So, you know, there are many big ifs here, many known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Uh, but whatever happens, this Ukrainian counteroffensive is a critical phase in this war. And that's mainly because it's seen by Western authorities as a test to determine whether Ukraine should be given more military aid. So it's a kind of situation where the West will keep on giving military aid as long as Ukraine uses it effectively. But anyway, it's, uh, it's moving along there, and we've got a lot to keep a close eye on as these battles continue. We've given Ukraine's forces important training and impressive capabilities. But war is fluid, dynamic, and unpredictable. Ukraine's fight is not some easy sprint to the finish line. And our message remains clear. We will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. That was U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking at the NATO headquarters in Brussels yesterday. Um, and, and he's really uh, getting to the, the question about whether or not this counteroffensive can be assessed at this juncture. Um, because a lot of onlookers are making some pretty quick assessments and saying that Ukraine is failing. 38 square miles is paltry, they say. Ukraine is not punching through the Russian lines, won't be able to sever the land bridge. Um, and you know, time may prove them right. But at this juncture, I think that it's just far too early to make any kind of conclusive assessment of the counteroffensive success. It was always going to be a marathon, you know, not a, you know, a hundred yard dash. And, and I think that that's what Austin is, is getting at there. But I think that his message is something that deeply disturbs the Russians, because Russia keeps on hoping that they can kind of tire the West out, and that the West will give up on Ukraine and just let the thieves and killers do what thieves and killers do. Um, so that announcement from Austin it would really set the Russian teeth on edge, but it also means, but, but all of this, I think, just means that it's, it's too early to make any kind of conclusive assessment about how this uh, counteroffensive will ultimately go. But I wanted to, to talk about this for a little while, though, just because there is a passage of Bible prophecy. It's Ezekiel chapter 38, and actually 39 as well. And Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Fleury says that this is discussing a certain Russian leader in the modern era. And this is a man who will be the leader of a vast block of Asian nations in the near future, a group that even includes China. And Mr. Flurry says that the Russian man in these chapters is none other than Vladimir Putin. So we can't say for certain right now how Ukraine's counteroffensive will ultimately go 
or what all of the, you know, the various specific results of the whole war will be. But Mr. Flurry says that one thing we can be sure of is that Putin will not be pushed out of power. And in fact, in the years ahead, he'll become much more powerful and will soon be leading a uh, far larger army. That's the prophesied prince of Russia at thetrumpet.com. The prophesied prince of Russia. Go to thetrumpet.com slash literature. Thanks, Jeremiah Jacques, for updating us on Russia and Ukraine, as well as China. In England, uh, watching both England and uh, Europe is our analyst, Mr. Richard Palmer. Mr. Palmer, what are the main stories from that region this week? So we've had uh, a lot of the stories revolve around immigration. Uh, you might remember last week, I think we talked about on June 8th, a Syrian refugee stabbed some people in a park in southeastern France, including some children between one and three. Then on June 10th, on Saturday, a 15-year-old boy was killed. Three people were injured in a shooting in Stockholm in Sweden, which we don't know for sure that that was an immigrant, but Sweden has a, an epidemic of violence that takes place in largely migrant areas that has exploded since they opened the door to immigration and they don't want to talk about migrant stats. So I think anybody can kind of put those those few together. Uh, in Sweden, there was also an unrelated shooting uh, the day before. So a lot of uh, a lot of these kind of uh, migrant related uh, crimes and we're seeing a response to that. So just today, or, or yesterday, Finland got their coalition agreement together where we're seeing the Finns party. This was formerly the True Finns. And in fact, actually, the more kind of right wing faction of the True Finns uh, is now forming a coalition. So you're seeing this party that was previously considered kind of unacceptable beyond the pale. Um, you know, they, the, the, when the predecessor went into the coalition, they quit because they didn't they thought that it was too left wing. Uh, they're now a part of Sweden's government. So this is a trend I kind of wrote about in the Trumpet Brief yesterday as it relates to Germany, where more and more political parties are adopting far-right rhetoric. And so you're seeing the, this migrant crisis pushing Europe into this more strongman, authoritarian uh, direction that we've talked about them going in for a, for a long, long time. And then finally, another news story is you're seeing the EU, uh, they were, uh, you had European officials along with Italian leader Giorgio Maloney visiting Tunisia. They announced a new deal where they'll give Tunisia a billion euros, about a billion dollars to deal with some of their migrant problems and to try and take care of migration more. So you're also seeing migration pushing Europe to get much more involved in the Middle East uh, and to be more direct in confronting Islamism and propping up allied governments. Tunisia, not exactly a democracy. They're not having a great time right now, the Italian government, but Europe is quite keen to step up and support them with funds because they want friends in the area. So this migration crisis is pushing through biblically prophetic trends on a whole number of different fronts. You mentioned the trumpet brief. I'll just mention to the listener that you can go to the trumpet.com look there at the top if you're not already subscribed and you can subscribe to the trumpet brief and get uh, all manner of emails uh, adjusted to your preference for frequency and, and subject matter um, and we don't know when it will snap into a forceful superpower europe uh, but when it does it'll be too late uh, what what's the main story that uh, kind of illustrates what's going on there in europe this week yeah, I mean, this does illustrate this rising European power where you had NATO holding their largest ever air drills in all of their history, you know, throughout all of the Cold War, etc. This was the biggest. And Germany was the lead nation. 
leading Europe in this air drills. It all revolved around Germany. So you had 10,000 soldiers, 250 aircraft from 25 different countries. Uh, there was an air base in the Netherlands and the Czech Republic that were involved. Apart from that, this was generally in Germany and German skies. Uh, it actually it kind of began as a kind of joint German-American effort. Uh, and that it would be these two that would train together. But then all of NATO ended up getting on board. Uh, if Swedes were invited. Japan came along as well. Uh, the uh, U.S. Air National Guard Director General Michael Lowe, he said that this training allowed what well, was on a larger scale than we usually accompany on the continent. He said this is about now establishing what it means to go against a great power in great power competition. So I think you know, you've got two things here. You've got Europe practicing at a large scale, which is going to highlight problems, increase its ability, increase its readiness to be able to expand quickly on a large scale. And then also just the symbolism uh, that everybody is very consciously going along with uh, that saying, you know, yes, we want Germany to lead the largest ever air drills in Europe. We want to send this signal that Germany is the leading military power in Europe, that we are all behind Germany. We support them. Uh, and so that is, is also remarkable that you've got the United States and everybody else saying, yep, we're all on board with it. I mean, it's kind of a big pat on the back from all of NATO for Germany saying, well, you've talked about stepping up militarily. Well, here's a bit of encouragement. We want you to do more. We want you to lead us, lead these exercises, and we'll expect more from you. And this comes and if out. I may add, just sure, go as, ahead. Uh, like, from my perspective, as I was flying over here, I stopped off in Frankfurt from a uh, – connection between England and Tel Aviv. Just a little illustration on how seriously the Germans are taking these exercises. My plane, the indication was I almost got grounded because of these exercises. I was boarding the plane and uh, they were uh, giving announcements that if we didn't leave in the next five minutes, uh, there's a chance we wouldn't be able to take off because of these NATO exercises and how NATO took over uh, jurisdiction of the airspace. I've been doing a lot of flying through a lot of different countries, including Germany, including a lot of other countries in NATO uh, that do these uh, similar exercises all the time. I've never been had the threat of being grounded, and especially Frankfurt, Germany's economic capital. The fact that they're willing to interfere and tra travel to in between this city and the rest of the world, I think goes to show how seriously Germany is taking these exercises. I, th I think that's right. Largest ever ex air exercises while a war is raging with Russia in Europe. Uh, that's that's not an insignificant event. This goes with what we've highlighted before, where Germany actually commands forces from other countries, including the Netherlands, meaning the entire land forces uh, of the Netherlands. Uh, Mr. Palmer, you've written or you've pointed to an article, Europe's push toward a unified military that gives us the larger uh, significance. That's right, yes. Uh, it's one of the trends that we're watching. It's up there at the top right-hand corner of our website in the trends section. Because, yeah, this is like, you, know, you, you take yourself back to Herbert W. Armstrong in 1945 saying, you know, Germany's rubble, and he's saying Germany's going to rise again. You know, if you'd have taken, if you'd have talked to 99.999% of the Earth's population and said, you know, in another 80 years, Germany is going to be leading NATO's largest ever air exercises. They would have said no way. You look at what Mr. Armstrong was saying, he would have not been remotely surprised. Uh, if anything, he might be surprised that it didn't happen sooner. But that's because everything that he's saying was all completely based on Bible prophecy. 
and you've got these scriptures describing this European power that is that is going to rise. Other scriptures talk about Assyria being the leading nation of this power, and Assyria refers to Germany in Bible prophecy. And so because of those scriptures, Mr. Armstrong was was sounding that warning at a time that no one else was. So we're still watching Germany rise. And you mentioned at the start, you know, we're still kind of waiting to see, uh, you know, when are we going to see this really muscular Europe very publicly emerge? But in so many ways, Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled in Europe. And you can look at Europe and see proof that what the Bible said thousands of years ago has happened and that what Herbert W. Armstrong talked about for decades based on those prophecies, it's happened. Uh, it's here. You know, th they're already reliable. And now we're just waiting to, to, for kind of the final phases of some of those prophecies to be fulfilled. That was Europe's push toward a unified military, one of a number of trends articles at thetrumpet.com. If you want some of the most thorough articles that uh, these men and others have have researched and written and worked together on, uh, the, the trends articles would probably be it. Uh, this one, again, Europe's push toward a unified military. Go to thetrumpet.com and look for trends up there at the top. The next uh, region we'll look at is the Middle East, where Mihailo Zekic is located currently uh, after his flight through through Europe, as he mentioned there. And we're talking about military hardware flying above and around you and, and a little too close to comfort there as far as uh, p potentially grounding you, your flight. Uh, your main story concerns some military hardware in the Middle East, but uh, give us the other uh, main stories from the region first. Sure. Well, I'm going to do a bit of a spin and uh, become our Latin America correspondent for a little bit because some of our important Middle Eastern stories also concern Latin America. This week, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi visited Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela on a diplomatic tour. Um, no surprise, America and Iran are not good relations with each other. Neither is America in good relations with any of these countries. But to have the uh, Iranian president in Cuba, just a, a boat ride away from Miami, I think goes to uh, is a pretty proactive symbol in and of itself. And seeing Iran increase its uh, influence in these countries right on America's doorstep is pretty concerning. On June 11th, meanwhile, uh, China and Saudi Arabia signed uh, $10 billion worth of new trade deals. Uh, Saudi Arabia reaching out to partners other than America is a trend we follow on the trumpet quite a bit. Looks like China is uh, becoming one of those big partners. And on June 15th, Argentina announced the arrest warrants of four um, Lebanese suspects in the 1994 uh, bombing of the EMEA uh, Jewish Cultural Center in Buenos Aires. Um, Decades past, too little, too late. You could say nobody's been uh, charged or arrested, I should say, uh, uh, yet about that. But it goes to show the long shadow Iran uh, has. Uh, Iran and its Lebanese proxy Hezbollah are highly implicated in that attack. And it goes to show that even for a terror attack decades back, people are still thinking about it and uh, still taking the shadow that Iran holds quite seriously. And what about that military hardware deal that you mentioned? Yes. So yesterday, Israel just announced the that it's going to sell its Merkava tank to two countries, the first time it has ever sold its flagship tank to foreign buyers. And they didn't specify which country uh, countries they're going to, but uh, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant specified that one of them is in Europe. And uh, 
this uh, also uh, coincides with a lot of European countries selling their excess tanks to Ukraine to fight against Russia. Um, Yair Kulas, who heads uh, the Defense Ministry's Export Coordination Department, said that this is in response to those countries, a lot of which have deep ties with Israel, selling their tank or giving their tanks to Ukraine. Israel is giving some of their excess tanks over to Europe to supply their uh, all of a sudden shortage. Um, perhaps a bit of a minor story. Israel and Europe cooperate on security quite a bit. But when you have the first ever sale of this tank, which people would say is a state of the art, uh, and it has to be because Israel is, of course, surrounded by enemies, two, of, uh, two foreign countries, that opens up a Pandora's box that Israel can't really walk away from. Now, the, these countries, whichever they, whoever they are, can look at these tanks and figure out, okay, how does this work? What are the best conditions it can work with? They can reverse engineer them if they really want it. So, uh, countries generally don't sell military hardware like this to other countries willy-nilly for those reasons in case if an attack happens back on them. You only sell this kind of military hardware, never mind just any old military hardware, but it's flagship tank to partners that you really, really trust. So it goes to show the levels of trust that Israel is having in Europe and how much they're just deepening cooperation with each other. Uh, military exercises and sales of weapons platforms like tanks, uh, those things go below the radar most of the time until they start being used in hostilities. Uh, so, so what do you think? Is this good news or bad news? Well... If you want Bible prophecy's opinion, this is pretty bad news. I'm not saying that Israel shouldn't be on friendly relations with Europe and that they should try and step on each other's toes as much as possible. But there's a prophecy in Ezekiel 16 that talks about um, the Israelite nations, meaning America and Britain, and Judah, which is the state of Israel today, a bit of a name, uh, a confusion of names there, under the poetic names uh, Ahola and Aholaba. And both these uh, poetic uh, women, shall we say, as the prophecy uh, uh, calls them, are God condemns them for having love affairs with the Europeans, the Assyrians, specifically Germany, and the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, Italy today. In other words, the main countries of the European Union today. Uh, God is a bit angry that these nations whom he raised up, who he has a history with, are trusting in foreign powers for their military, on trusting on uh, the prophecy mentions on them being interested in all these soldiers, uh, gorgeously cozed soldiers, m men of war. And God says that these uh, these lovers are going to turn on both Ahola and Ahola, but they're going to have a military backstab. Israel uh, selling its main uh, uh, tank to Europe is a part of this increasingly intimate military relationship it is having with Europe. And prophecy says that eventually there's going to be a backstab there. If our listeners would want to learn more, it's a bit of a dated article, but still has some time, timeless principles that can be applied to today. Our editor-in-chief, uh, Mr. Gerald Fleury, wrote an article called The Significance of Germany's Break from America that can go into detail about the prophecy in Ezekiel 16 and some other things as well. An intimate military relationship. That's a, a fitting phrase. We talked a little bit about that after the show last week, the more you see how international relations and alliances and deals and uh, so forth really do work, the more you kind of understand why the Bible uh, characterizes those relationships as the relations of of lovers or, or even prostitutes. It's a, it's a really stark 
way to look at it, but uh, a, f- a fitting way to look at it. Mahalo Zekic, we thank you for bringing that to us from the Middle East. Stay with us. Welcome to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. I'm Philip Nice, and I'm here with Andrew Miller and Jeremiah Jacques at the Trumpet Studio in Edmond, Oklahoma. And we're connected by a teleconference to Richard Palmer at our office in England and Mihailo Zekic, who, as he will be for the next few weeks in review, joins us from our office in Jerusalem, Israel. We want to get into a discussion that involves Israel, the United States, and really all the major powers, because all the major powers have an interest in gaining advantages in the Middle East, or at least preventing it from exploding. And you can't talk about the Middle East at all anymore without talking about Iran. Now, Mihailo Zekic has posted an article, Iranian politician, U.S. and Iran want an unwritten nuclear deal at thetrumpet.com. Iranian politician, U.S. and Iran want an unwritten nuclear deal. Andrew Miller, you've looked into this a little bit. Give us the who, what, when, where before Mihailo gives us a little bit more on this deal. Yeah, the Biden administration has already quietly restarted talks with Iran, and the deal they're negotiating is every ounce as bad as the original uh, Obama-Iran nuclear deal, if not worse. Uh, according to the um, the news exclusive the Wall Street Journal put out on this topic, Washington has approved $2.7 billion in payments by the Iraqi government for Iranian electricity and gas imports to be sent to Iran. That was money that was previously frozen by U.S. sanctions. They're lifting these sanctions, uh, letting this $2.7 billion into Iran. Uh, will probably lift other sanctions that let more money in in the near future. So uh, really just pouring money into the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism um, in return for, hopefully, the release of some American prisoners and um, some Iranian promises to scale back on their nuclear program. It looks like right now they're they're wanting to uh, <laughs> they're wanting at least an oral agreement. This is unofficial, so it's not written, but at least an oral agreement that you're going to not enrich uranium past 60 percent and not make any more advanced centrifuges. So uh, that's why I said it's maybe worse than the original uh, deal is like one, it's not written. Uh, two, there's not even as, from what the Wall Street Journal was saying, as many stipulations. They're just saying it's like, don't enrich uranium past 60%, and we'll let billions of dollars into your country, which was um, uh, General Mike Flynn's uh, big criticism of the original Iranian deal is that he was fighting wars against terrorists in the Middle East at the time, saying that um, the Achilles heel... <laughs> of uh, Middle Eastern terrorist groups 
of many, many Middle Eastern terrorist groups is the funding they get from Iran. So lifting sanctions on Iran in return for them not enriching uranium, the best case scenario for that deal, the best case scenario is you stop Iran from getting a nuclear bomb by promising to let them continue being the world's number one sponsor of terrorism. The worst case scenario is that you continue letting them be the num world's number one sponsor of terrorism and they develop a bomb in secret anyway. So Iran is getting billions of dollars without even having to commit to anything in writing at this point. Uh, you'll remember that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was uh, often referred to as the nuclear deal. That was passed by the uh, Obama administration when he was uh, president. And I always point out that, that even that was not a treaty. The reason it had that acronym, JCPOA, uh, plan of action is what it was it wasn't a treaty uh it was uh considered or adopted as a united nations security council resolution i believe but that's uh how um as high as it ever got now you've got apparently an agreement in the works where they're not even committing to anything in writing milo zekic well no and again for obvious reasons a lot of people are comparing the discussions that are going on right now to the JCPOA. And as long as discussions are behind closed doors, until we get any confirmation from any official source, we can only guess based on whistleblowers and other sources of information like that, what this uh, deal would entail or even when it's going to pass. Now, our editor-in-chief has uh, written extensively on how bad the Iranian nuclear deal was before. This one's way worse. At the very least, you had some silver lining with the old deal. You had promises from Iran to, say, not uh, increase its enrichment to 60%. You've had promises to uh, not make any advanced centrifuges. And when you look at at least the tidbits of information that media are able to get, that's one of the reasons why they didn't want to go back to the original deal, because that would involve Iran scaling back its uh, – uh, uranium that it has already enriched. It would involve Iran destroying some of its centrifuges that it's already using. And like you said, the JCPOA wasn't a treaty, but at least it was a piece of paper with clear obligations and stipulations that he could compare it to. Who knows what is being offered in this deal? Who knows how it can possibly be enforced? And I mean, what's there to enforce anyway? Iran gets to keep everything it already has. In exchange, all Iran gives is a promise that it won't do the thing it's been doing now for several years. When they signed the JCPOA or, or afterwards, Iran still made progress on its ballistic missile program with a clear, if not veiled, intent to use it for a nuclear weapon. So this is, in one sense, this is even worse than the, the Munich Agreement, if you want to go to historical parallels when um, Chamberlain and Hitler made that agreement that divided up Czechoslovakia, at least there was a paper that you could look at. In this case, there is no paper you can look at. There is no clause saying what happens if Iran breaks this deal, and it will still get to keep all the billions of dollars that America is giving it. And this isn't just uh, concerning the United States and Iran. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. I mean, as you mentioned in the introduction there, this really involves so many global powers. And you just have to kind of shake your head at what America's endgame is with all of this, because it essentially establishes a method of blackmail that Iran can use against the U.S. anytime it wants sanctions relief. You know, give us a couple of billion dollars or we'll enrich every radioactive element we can dig up. Um, so it incentivizes that blackmail. It does nothing to address Iran's systematic funding of terrorist groups, as Andrew just mentioned there. It also does nothing to address Iran's direct support of Russia in the war against Ukraine. I found that American Russophiles don't really like being reminded that as they root for Russia to win the war, they're also rooting for Iran. You know, those two are very much in bed with each other right now. So a deal like this will indirectly even fund Russia's war at the same time as the U.S. is funding Ukraine's attempts to, to defend itself. Um, and then we also have to remember the Iranian people. You know, with these kinds of deals where a big pallet of cash is sent to Iran's leaders, it enables the mullahs at the expense of the Iranian people. This this is $2.7 billion that will help the government keep on violently oppressing and suppressing the people. So maybe it does kick the can down the road a, a little bit, at least in the short term, with the U.S.'s number one priority, which is preventing Iran from getting the bomb. But it leaves a whole list of serious concerns, including Iran's support for Russia's war, entirely unaddressed. I think the U.S. policy has been baffling on this, as, as you've said, uh, dating back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, I remember hearing about that for the first time and just wondering who asked for this, right? Like uh, many Americans were, were saying, you know, we knew that Iran uh, was a state, the state sponsor of terrorism. We knew that uh, it was dangerous. We knew that it considered us the great Satan and uh, possibly, likely had certain connections to 9-11 and certainly many connections to many events like that on smaller scales around the world. And then all of a sudden, the U.S. is is putting lots of capital, literal and otherwise, into helping not just Iran, as you kind of drew the distinction there, but the Iranian regime uh, with sanctions heavy on that regime uh, with uh, eventually like the Arab Spring even almost became a Persian Spring. There are a lot of Iranians who don't want that regime. And the U.S. of all nations, of all nations, is helping that regime, not just Iran, the, the Iranian radical Islamic regime stay in power uh, with billions of dollars here, with sanctions relief there, with, uh, again, nuclear agreements or nuclear whispers that no Americans that I know of would be demanding. There's no constituency demanding that uh, the American president go into these types of negotiations and find ways to keep the Iranian regime alive. Uh, and yet that's exactly what uh, Barack Obama did when he was president. And it appears to be what he's doing now uh, behind the scenes with Joe Biden as the uh, so-called president. I think the only people that are do are encouraging this are non-Americans, which tells you a lot about whether this is in America's interest or not. Uh, I, a related story I spotted this week from Europe is that Iran's news agency is claiming that Germany 
has resumed oil imports after Iran. And you kind of you saw this with the JCPOA that they uh, agreed the deal and then it was a bonanza for European. You know, you had Airbus doing this massive deal with Iranian airlines and Siemens was getting in there helping Iran build power plants. And um, it was a big payday for Europe. And it, it kind of illustrates this slightly contradictory relationship Europe has with Iran where you absolutely do have leaders within Europe and within Germany who are worried about radical Islam. We mentioned in the first half, this billion dollars that Europe has given to Tunisia. They're making links with friendly governments across the Middle East because they fear they will have to confront the unfriendly at some point. Uh, So there's that. But then there's a substantial number in a lot of these European countries, I think, that don't necessarily take it so seriously because so much of their rhetoric is directed at America. And so it's kind of like, okay, fine, you know, they hate America, they hate Israel. They don't hate us, so we can make we can get rich doing business with them. Who cares? Uh, which, I mean, that in itself illustrates how committed European powers are to the NATO alliance and, and this relationship with the United States. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that you had that on display this week, exactly as you had on display after the JCPOA, that for, for a lot of European powers, it's payday at America's expense. I thought of that too, that Airbus deal. Uh, and yet, like you said, uh, Europe seems to be having it or trying to have it both ways. Do you think that that's going to change uh, when religion enters in more to it uh, than it than it has entered into it thus far? Yeah, I think that's absolutely a part of it. I mean, if you look at, say, some of this immigration that we were talking about a bit in the first half, Europe is divided on that, uh, where some of the, the more liberal kind of old guard say are much more open the doors and, and whatever but you're seeing more and more people coming in that are much more concerned about keeping out migrants preserving european christian culture uh, all of this kind of thing and the more and this is in response to a lot of islamic rhetoric about attacking christians and crusaders and you know you've kind of had the islamic state was much more focused on europe than they were on the united states so yeah i think that's a great point and i think you can see that religious conflict brewing and then you can see that uh potentially changing europe's relationship with iran and and, and with the islamic islamic world so that's something to, to definitely keep an eye on to to look for these events uh to progress toward those types of outcomes and also keep an eye on who is it in the American government who is pushing this forward when it seems like few to any American uh, uh, factions or constituencies would be demanding such a thing. So keep an eye on that. Mihailo Zekic, you wrote all about this in that article I mentioned, Iranian politician, U.S. and Iran want an unwritten nuclear deal. What else did you uh, find significant there and where can the listener turn for I guess, the greater significance of, of where this is headed? Well, there are a couple of places we could turn to. Um, there's a biblical passage in Daniel 11, verse 40, that time and time again we go to when talking about Iran. Um, Iran fulfills the biblical role of the king of the south, a pushy, provocative power that provokes at the king of the north or Catholic Europe and triggers events that will culminate in World War III and ultimately to the return of Jesus Christ. Iran racing at breakneck speed to get a nuclear weapon, uh, increasing its uh, ability to 
finance terrorism around the world. That's a huge uh, aspect of this push. But there's one other aspect that you mentioned my article in the beginning of this segment that uh, I wrote in that article about this particular deal. And you took the words out of my mouth a little bit there. What's the the big uh, person to watch is not the supreme leader in Iran. It's not any of these other figures, but Barack Obama. What is he doing? Why does he want to do this? Why is he trying to make it as easy as possible without making PR look too bad for Iran to get a nuclear bomb? It ties into a, another passage that our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury, goes to often to talk about what's going on with the radical left in the United States. That would be Second Kings chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 where it talks about somebody trying to blot out the name of Israel and causing bitter affliction on the nations of Israel, which include, of course, and especially in this case, America, but it also includes the little Jewish nation in the Middle East that we call Israel today. Um, Iran, if they get a nuclear bomb, they want to use it. And there's one country in particular they want to use it, possibly more than any others. That would be the nation of Israel in the Middle East. They want Jerusalem for themselves. It's a holy city to them. They probably wouldn't drop a bomb on Jerusalem per se, but they still said they want to wipe Israel off on the map. Um, and by helping them, uh, helping the Iranians get a nuclear bomb, Obama demonstrates he has the same desire. He, he wouldn't be making it so easy for them to get this totally destructive weapon that everyone knows they will use against this tiny country otherwise. I mean, he's shown his disdain for the Jewish state in many different ways. But ultimately, it's not about this one little country called the state of Israel. It's about the, what Israel represents, what the name of Israel represents, the promises of God, the, the, of, the, of a nation that he himself established millennia ago. Uh, the Bible came from the Jews, the Judeo-Christian heritage that Marxists love to attack in culture wars. That all stems from Israel and the name of Israel. And that's ultimately what he's attacking. If our listeners would like to learn more, I'd recommend they look to Chapter 2 of our King of the South booklet entitled Barack Obama and the King of the South, written by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Fleury. It talks about Obama's relationship with Iran from now all the way back to when he was officially president and why he's still pursuing that relationship, why it's so important to him, and what it means for the wider world today. That's The King of the South, written by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Mahalo Zekic, speaking to us from Israel. I'm sure these events are all the more important from your current perspective, and we look forward to more coverage from you from that location. That's our hour for this week. Email us your thoughts, listeners, on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank our panel, Jeremiah Jacques and Andrew Miller, Mahalo Zekic and Richard Palmer, and thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production, as well as Jesse Hester. I'm Philip Nice. That is your Week in Review for today's Trumpet Hour, and thank you for joining us. 